It seems to me that in the world today, we give depression way too much respect. We think of it as something that is basically a death sentence. We don't really understand it that well. We're not even that sure it can be understood. We just take a pill and try to not think about it. It's almost as if it can't be understood and it can't be beat. Now, I know each of you have been through many difficult things that I don't understand. And I don't want to make light of that. But I do want us to challenge our misery. I want us to challenge our pain. I want us to be sure that it doesn't have to be this way before we accept that it does. In my estimation, depression is made out of three things. Injury, neglect, and obsession. Something hurts us very bad. Something from childhood, maybe a spouse, Maybe something that just didn't go the way you wanted. Maybe your life didn't go the way you wanted. Maybe you have a very deep regret of chances that you never took. Maybe you thought that you'd be someone else, somewhere else in life. Maybe life just didn't go the way you thought. Maybe you know there was things you could have done differently to make it go the way you wished. And you didn't do those things. Whatever it is. We get injured. We get deeply hurt. We're not all that sure what to do about that. And nobody else really cares. So we go into neglect. But eventually, neglect is no longer an option. Maybe it's months or years. But eventually, all that pain comes back to the surface. When neglect starts to fade, as the pain becomes too much to bear... This is where I believe depression steps in. As you no longer ignore your suffering, you start to self-diagnose. You start to realize that you are not okay. To solve the neglect, to cope, we bring in obsession. Self-obsession. Now maybe for a time this is the right move. Maybe this is just for a while. Depression is half self-loathing, half self-obsession. The obsession often presents itself as a harmless friend. It's there to help you through the neglect that you've been suffering. At first, this is helpful because obsession is the opposite of neglect. It may even be just. But as the neglect fades, the obsession is still there, waiting in the wings, eager for center stage. I recently heard someone describe depression as, I feel like a train is coming right at me. And there's nothing I can do to stop it. As if they built the tracks around you. As if the conductor knows your name. As if he cares enough to have it out for you. The world is tragic and filled with suffering. But it doesn't care about you at all. It doesn't love you and it doesn't hate you. It has no opinion on you. The train is not coming at you. You aren't the center of the universe. You can walk over to the tracks and lay down if you want, but you can't redirect the train. We often think that the toughest pill to swallow is, what if there's no God and everything is meaningless? But even that flatters us. What we're really saying is, if I don't deem life to be meaningful, then how could it be? If I say life is pointless, then surely it is. As if there's nothing other than you. As if there's nothing other than me as if I am the ultimate reality. 
the truly toughest pill to swallow is, what if there is a God and it's not me? The end of depression is not happy thoughts to hold you over on this long trip to nowhere. The end of depression is brokenness. Surrender. Not a metaphysical nirvana arrived at by some grand enlightenment, but just good old-fashioned misery. In recovery, they say, when your pain outgrows your fear, you will change. Brokenness creates breathing room. Room for something other than me. For something other than my hurt, my obsession, and my resentment. Room for an actual God who is actually nothing like me or you. Room for something we can't move. Something we didn't create. Something we can't destroy. Scripture teaches that spirit is primary and matter is derivative. That's the opposite of the view of the modern world. The modern world says that what can be seen is more real than what can't. But deep within us, I think we all know that isn't true. Even most atheists believe in God. They just don't like who he is very much. Peter Hitchens once said about his brother Christopher Hitchens that the summary of his beliefs are, There is no God and I hate him. I think deep down we know that there is something more than the physical world. But when we feel rejected by it, when we fear that God no longer loves us or that he never did, we go into a downward cycle of ways to cope, either to believe that he's not there, or to throw the finger up at him. But all of these are just different ways to cope with the reality that we don't want to notice. Another way to cope is to shrink God down. I see this a lot amongst people in church, and I've lived it for years. We make God tiny. He's just like us. He doesn't think anything we don't think. He doesn't do anything we don't do. There is a spirit world that we know nothing about. We're not even capable of knowing very much about it. And it's there. St. Augustine said, if you can understand it, it isn't God. To walk with God is to tiptoe through a dimension we have extremely limited knowledge of. A dimension filled with fear and unexplainable things. We don't live long enough to see how any of these stories end, where the world goes. We were never made to. To fabricate endings we're pleased with, to shrink God down, is nothing but a way to cope. The only honest way through life is to come to God and say, I'm scared. Help me. This, when this happens, this is when death starts to die. This is how the impending doom in our brain starts to see light again. This is how the emptiness of our mind starts to become fertile ground, day after day, week after week, as we continue to turn over control. The darkness recedes a tiny bit at a time, until after years of fear, years of self-protection, and years of self-hatred, we're finally, once again, safe enough to play like a child, to truly rest. After years of fighting off predators, years of never letting anyone in, 
years of never feeling anything, were invited to run through fields which were once deserts, and to help others do the same. I'm going to read a piece from the John Eldridge book, Get Your Life Back. Quote, start with something you love, the laughter of a child, sunlight on the ocean, your dog, your favorite song, music itself. This is the way back, the path home. For we don't always draw the connection between things that we love and God. But God made these things specifically for you, and he gave you the heart to love them. Every moment you have ever been happy, thrilled, comforted, or hopeful, that was God loving you. Such gifts come from no other place. Scripture says you open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Without a heart you will never be happy. Your enemy knows this. He knows he can use your suffering to shut down your heart and turn you against God. Life is a savage assault on our heart's confidence that God is good. Mere Christianity said it this way. Suppose one reads a story of a filthy atrocity in the newspaper. Then something comes out that suggests the story might not be as bad as it was originally stated. It is one's first feeling, thank God, even they aren't as bad as that. Or is one's first feeling a feeling of disappointment, of even a detriment to cling to the first story, for the sheer pleasure of thinking your enemy as bad as possible. If it is the second, then it is, I am afraid, the first step in a process which, if followed to the end, will make us into devils. You see, one is beginning to wish that black was a little blacker. If we give that wish its head, later on we shall wish to see gray as black, and then to see white itself as black. Finally, we shall insist on seeing everything, God, our friends, and even ourselves, as bad, and we will not be able to stop doing it. We shall be fixed forever in a universe of pure hatred. I know of three things which can help us to leave depression, which can help us to leave emptiness. Surrender, communion, and adventure. To surrender is to surrender each day as an offering, as flawed as they are, to take up our cross, but not to take up everyone's, to kill our cynicism, to mix our pain and our personality, to use those things to sow meaning into everything we touch, that each moment of joy should be enjoyed unironically, without sneer or smirk, to take our placing on this earth as proof from a voice much higher than ours, that it is redeemable, to bring order to chaos, to create blessing from misery, to bring forgiveness from well-earned resentment, day after day, year after year, until one day he takes our hand and brings us home. Another way out of cynicism is other people. If you're too in your own head, if you can't hear any other voice but your own, find something about every person you talk to that you want. If you're talking to someone who won't shut up for an hour about how much they love Star Wars and you don't like Star Wars at all and wish they would shut up and go away, then acknowledge that the fact that they would talk that long about something you don't care about 
means they have a capacity, a joy, an enthusiasm, a feeling of enjoyment that you are also not capable of. That if every time you talk to someone you find some trait that they have that you would like to have a little bit more of, that this is a great way that for me personally that I have found to come out of my mind, to come out of my own head and to really enjoy the outside world. So the first thing is surrender. The second thing is communion. Communion with other people and with a group of people who feel the way you do about the world. In a recent podcast, Paul Vanderclay was talking about the Reformation and how in the Reformation was the idea of the priesthood of all believers, that every believer could talk directly to God. And there are many beautiful things about that, but one of the costs of that belief is that we no longer did confession. That confession was no longer a part of our religious practice. And I wonder how much depression, I wonder how much of what we spend on therapy is purely down to the fact that we no longer go to confession. One of the things that has created the most stability for me mentally is that once a week on Tuesday night I go meet with other men and we talk about real stuff. To have that place has meant so much to me, has meant so much to my stability. We are not meant to live alone. We do not live healthy when we are alone. And the last thing is adventure. The adventure of the rest of your life, the adventure out of cynicism, out of depression, out of emptiness, is how can you mix the pain you have already overcome with your personality? Because the blend of those two things is the journey and the adventure and the meaning of the rest of your life. What is the most painful thing you have already overcome? How could you mix that thing with your particular personality to take someone who's currently in the middle of that thing and bring them out? That is the rest of your life. 